Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 21, the book of Matthew, chapter 6, the second continuation. Well, as we continue today in the Lord's Prayer, we're going to begin at uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. Uh, now, verses 11, 12, and 13 are sometimes called the we peti petitions. This is because of the use of the plural us that begins each of these verses. Now, so it's give us food, give us, uh, forgive us our wrongs, do not lead us into temptation. Now, clearly, the idea is that the Lord's Prayer is a prayer form that is meant to show us as individuals, the important elements of every petition we make to the Lord. At the same time, these three verses demonstrate we're part of a community. In Christ's day, in the Sermon on the Mount, this community was the Jewish community, or better, the community of all Israel. Now, while Christianity has adopted this prayer as, as a, really a cornerstone of our faith. The prayer is entirely Jewish in its structure and in its thoughts. Every element of the prayer consists of old themes and of biblical principles, not new ones. I mean, so it's kind of ironic, at least to me, that a church that harbors so much anti-Jewishness buried in its doctrines and customs uses the Lord's Prayer as the centerpiece of Christian liturgy. Because in fact, this prayer couldn't be more Jewish. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, that is going to be on page 1230, 1230, verse 13. And we're going to read to the end of the chapter. And do not lead us into hard testing, but keep us safe from the evil one. For kingship, power, and glory are yours forever. Amen. For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others for their offenses, your heavenly Father will not forgive yours. Now, when you fast, don't go around looking miserable like the hypocrites. They make sour faces so that people will know they're fasting. Yes, I tell you, they have their reward already. But you, when you fast, wash your face, groom yourself so that no one will know you are fasting except your Father, who is with you in secret. Your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves wealth here on earth, where moths and rust destroy, where burglars break in and steal. Instead, store up for yourselves wealth in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and burglars do not break in or steal. For where your wealth is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if you have a good eye, that is, if you're generous, 
your whole body will be full of light. But if you have an evil eye, if you're stingy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can be a slave to do masters. For he, he will either hate the first and love the second, or scorn the second and be loyal to the first. You can't be a slave to both God and money. Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds flying about. They neither plant nor harvest nor do they gather food into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Now aren't you worth more than they are? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to his life? And why be anxious about clothing? Think about the fields of wild irises and how they grow. They neither work nor spin thread, yet I tell you that not even Shlomo, that Solomon, in all his glory was clothed as beautifully as any of these. If this is how God clothes grass in the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow, thrown in an oven, won't he much more clothe you? Oh, what little trust you have. So don't be anxious asking, what will we eat? What will we drink? How will, I, how will we be clothed? For it's the pagans who set their hearts on all these things. Your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first His kingdom and His righteous, righteousness, and then all these things will be given to you as well. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Today has enough Tsuras trouble. Already. Nearly all English Bible translations will read closer to the King James Version. In the King James Version, Matthew 6.13 reads like this, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. However, the complete Jewish Bible has it worded better when it says, and do not lead us into hard testing. Perhaps in the Old English, the term temptation meant something a little different than it means to us today. But for us, temptation means to wave something in front of us that we really desire, but we know we ought to resist. So temptation could be that divinely luscious chocolate mousse fudge cake that the waiter offers at the end of our meal, but we know we shouldn't take it. Maybe the temptation is trying to figure out how to stuff the cost of that sexy new BMW into our already stretched thin budget, but we probably shouldn't even be thinking about it. The Greek word is perosmos, and it means a trial. A testing. It's the equivalent to the Hebrew word nasa. Now here's a good example from the Torah of how we need to understand this word. In Deuteronomy 8:2, we find this. You are to remember everything of the way in which Adonai led you these 40 years in the desert, humbling and testing you in order to know what was in your heart whether you would obey his mitzvot, that's his commandments, or not. 
So in the Lord's Prayer, the idea is that the Lord would not lead us into hard testing in the manner that He did with the Israelites during their exodus from Egypt. Why? Because hard testing, as often as not, brings about failure. And that failure is inevitably sin. In the Talmudic tractate Bercha 60b, we read, Bring me not into the power of sin, and not into the power of guilt, and not into the power of temptation, testing, and not into the power of anything shameful. So this passage in the Lord's Prayer is expressing a well-established Jewish thought pattern. It is interesting that the Gnostic Christian Clement of Alexandria was known to pray, O Lord, put me to the test. Christ says we ought to hope for the opposite. James 1.13 says this about temptation. No one being tempted should say, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and God himself tempts no one. Here the Greek word that is being translated to English as tempted or temptation is perazo. The Greek lexicons say that this word means to try whether a thing can or ought to be done. So indeed it does mean temptation as we moderns think of the word. Thus while God will and does lead us into times of testing, He never leads us into temptations. Now because as I speak to you, it is the month of April in the year 2020. The world is currently in the midst of a pandemic of the COVID-19 virus. No one knows what the outcome will be. Whether by God or by serendipity, mankind is in the midst of a trial. And while I cannot say that God has necessarily led us here, at the least it is certainly His will that He has allowed this to happen because it cannot be otherwise. So believers, what is your response to this trial that is about a serious disease and the financial meltdown that is nearly inescapable? Is your job in jeopardy? Might you lose your home or apartment as a result? Will you be one of the hundreds of thousands that will soon turn into the millions that will get sick? We've all witnessed the fear and the panic in its various forms that this pandemic has caused, from empty supermarket shelves to people being stranded due to airlines being shut down. Look, here is how a believer is expected to view this situation. It is to be seen as our time of testing before the Lord. Let me say it again. This now is our time of testing before the Lord. In this time of testing that's so full of isolation and of uncertainty, the Bible tells us that we are to set our fears aside and trust God because fear and trust are incompatible.
2 Timothy 1.7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now, we're not to ignore this current dire situation, nor to pretend that no danger exists. But fear is not something that comes from God. In fact, fear is the gateway to panic. And panic reveals a lack of trust and a lack of faithfulness in the Lord. You know, it's understandable that pagans who lead most of the world's governments and represent most of the world's population are gripped in fear and in panic, and so they behave the way they do. But a believer? We ought not to feel the same or behave the same. If you do, you need to understand what this testing has revealed about you. And you must go to the Lord to seek remedy. The great King David, great King David, he faced daunting tests. He wrote many psalms expressing what he was feeling at the time. Here's an example. Psalm 56.4, when I, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. Psalm 23.4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. As verse 13 and the Lord's Prayer asks, the last thing we ought to do is to seek a hard testing from the Lord. King David often failed his testing. Israel often failed their testing. We often fail our testing. Sometimes because we don't recognize that testing for what it actually is. But you know, we don't have to fail. It's not inevitable that we stumble. As believers, the Holy Spirit is in us. As Yeshua's followers, we have an ever-present helper to guide and assist us through these hard trials. But how are we supposed to know what to do? Simply being saved doesn't inform us as to how we're to approach a hard trial. Only God's Word does that. God makes it abundantly clear that it all begins with our obedience, our faith, and our submission to Him. Because that is what a hard trial in our life is actually testing. We will be, will we be rather obedient to Jehovah's laws and commandments, or will we follow our old nature and the debased ways of the world and allow our evil inclinations to rule over us? See, we can't be obedient if we don't first know these laws and commandments. And without doubt, the most important commands that we must obey in such a time as this is to love God with all our might and to love our fellow man as we love ourselves. You know, it's marvelous how God made us such that in times of hard testing, 
if we focus on Him, it provides us with relief and comfort. It's ironic how in times of community or even national trial, that when we concern ourselves over others rather than over ourselves, that our personal level of fear subsides. Believers, now is our time to shine. The world desperately needs to see this from us. These are the times that those who don't yet know the Lord can look at us and they can see God's love and His stability when all else seems chaotic and dark and they can want Him. So let us concern ourselves with that rather than stocking our pantries to the fullest before somebody else does. And if we do, then we will pass the test and not fail it. Thomas Paine made a memorable quote that, while it's not in the Bible, certainly expresses a sentiment based on biblical principles and it's worth repeating and remembering at a time like what we're in right now. Listen to this. These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from their service of their country. But he that stands by it now deserves the love and the thanks of man and woman. Tyranny, like hell, is not easily conquered. And yet we have this consolation with us that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. It is dearness only that gives everything its value. Heaven knows how to put a proper price upon its goods, and it would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should not be highly rated. Shall we be summer soldiers and sunshine patriots for God and for His kingdom? That is, are we only available, loyal, and dedicated when times are joyful? When good outcomes are certain? There is no greater tyranny than that of fear and of panic. But when we look to the heavens and to the proper price that God puts on the things of this world, then we have a far better platform from which we can resist this instinct to join the non-believers in their inward terrors that result in unwise and ungodly outward reactions. Now I realize that some of you may not hear or read these words until long after this particular trial has passed and the world has return to normalcy. But I promise you that this will not be our last trial. There will be more in the future, perhaps greater than this one. What their exact nature or cause will be or when they will, will occur, only the Father knows. 
but as with any trial or calamity, it is best to be prepared ahead of time. Prepare, of course, by being vigilant, but also by drawing near to God and by sincerely learning His Word so that you can stand upon it and its truth, so that you can know what to do when that time arrives again. Now, although I've mentioned it before, many Bible scholars claim that Jesus' words in His sermon are meant for a future time, the time of the end. You know, when I taught the book of Daniel, I explained that biblically there are not one, but there are two latter days. Now, the first one has come and gone because it revolved around Christ's first coming. The second is future and it will revolve around His return. I can't get into the details of it today, but you can go to my teachings at TorahClass.com and you can research them. The point is that the Jewish people in Christ's day were certain that they were already in the end times. Therefore, Christ's words were meant both for His own time and for the future. It's not a matter of the one or the other. Such, rather, is kind of a common attribute of prophecy. Now, when verse 13 asks God to deliver us from evil, we find the complete Jewish Bible and some other Bible versions will say, evil one. That is, it refers to Satan. Now, the Greek word is paneros. The lexicons say it means hardships and annoyances. So the sense of it is not so much of wickedness, nor that it is directly attached to Satan. So I cannot agree with the idea that to deliver us from evil means to deliver us from the evil one. In fact, in Hebrew and in Aramaic literature from that time, the term evil one is never attached to the person of Satan. It is simply not a Jewish thought. Rather, it's a church term from much later times. Instead, I think we have to consider the context of its meaning as clearly having to do with the first part of this same verse, do not lead us into hard testing. So the petition to God is that rather than leading us into some kind of hard thing, to overcome, please deliver us from it. And what we don't want to be led into is testing and trial. Rather, we want to be delivered from hardships and calamities that are by their very nature the things that tests and what that tests us and they are what trials consist of, just as we are currently experiencing. And by the way, being delivered from something doesn't mean avoiding it altogether. It means to be rescued from the bad situation you are experiencing or perhaps being shown the way through it. Now, scholars call the final words of verse 13, which are, For kingship, power, and glory are yours forever. Amen. A doxology. That is, it's a standard ending 
to a, a worship service or to a prayer or maybe to a song. And the wording of this is very much typical of the synagogue liturgy of Christ's day. So the Lord's Prayer is indeed Jewish from the Our Father all the way to the Amen. Now I want to move on now from the Lord's Prayer to verse 14. What we have here is yet another quid pro quo. That is, God will respond according to how we behave. Specifically, if we forgive the offenses of others against us, then in equal measure He will forgive us our offenses against Him. For emphasis, and to be sure the point Yeshua is making is not misconstrued, Yeshua now states the same thing again, only in the negative. That is, He says, if you do not forgive others for their offenses against you, God will not forgive you for your offenses against Him. Now notice how this is connected directly to verse 12 of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us for what we have done wrong, as we too have forgiven those who have wronged us. Now let's talk about forgiveness for a minute because it is a difficult subject to put into practice. Forgiveness does not mean that the earthly, natural, or legal consequences of our wrong actions get erased on earth. Perhaps one of the best examples of this that I could draw upon comes from a film entitled, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Now the setting is the Great Depression era of the 1930s. Three knuckleheads escape from a deep south prison chain gang, and at one point in their attempt to journey back home and to evade the police, of course, one of them hears the worship songs of a baptism that's taking place just off the road at a rather muddy river. And although there's a long line of white-robed people waiting their turn, he races to the front as if drawn by a magnet and gets dunked. And when he comes up out of the water, he is ecstatic. And he tells his criminal friends that God has forgiven him for all his sins, including that piggly wiggly market that he had robbed. The ringleader of the group expresses doubt and tells him that while God may have forgiven him, it's not likely that the governor of Mississippi sees it quite the same way. The point is that the kind of forgiveness that humans give to other humans is as spiritual in nature as the kind of forgiveness that God gives to us. Whether human to human or God to human, forgiveness does not mean that we always escape rightful punishments on earth for our wrong actions, especially, however, in a family or among friends, that does happen. What it ultimately does mean is that, is that such complete forgiveness regards our eternal future and our status before God. The key principle that is being invoked is reconciliation. This is because reconciliation between humans begins with forgiveness, and it mimics the reconciliation between God and humans that we call salvation. 
Now the next subject that Christ speaks about is fasting. And his instruction on it boils down to this. What matters to God is our inward humility and not some outward display that's intended to gather attention. Once again, Yeshua is not pronouncing a new way to look at fasting. Rather, he is trying to restore what God intended from times of old. 700 years earlier, God said this through his prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 58, starting at verse 1, we read this. Shout out loud, don't hold back. Raise your voice like a shafar. Proclaim to my people what rebels they are, to the house of Yaakov, Jacob, their sins. Oh yes, they seek me day after day and claim to delight in knowing my ways, as if they were an upright nation that had not abandoned the rulings of their God. They ask me for just rulings and then claim to take pleasure in closeness to God, asking, well, why should we fast if you don't see it? Why mortify ourselves if you don't notice? Well, here's my answer. When you fast, you go about doing whatever you like, while keeping your laborers hard at work. Your fasts lead to quarreling, to fighting, to lashing out with violent blows. On a day like today, fasting like yours, that will not make your voice heard on high. Is this the sort of fast I want? A day when a person mortifies himself? Is the object to hang your head like a reed and spread sackcloth and ashes under yourself? Is this what you call a fast? A day that pleases Adonai? Here's the sort of fast I want. Releasing those unjustly bound, untying the thongs of the yoke, letting the oppressed go free, breaking every yoke, sharing your food with the hungry, taking the homeless poor into your house, clothing the naked when you see them, fulfilling your duty to your kinsmen. Then your light will burst forth like the morning. Your new skin will quickly grow over your wound. Your righteousness will precede you, and Adonai's glory will follow you. Then when you call, Adonai will answer. You will cry, and he will say, Here I am. See, Yeshua says, that rather than fasting and going around looking miserable so that people will think, Oh, how pious you must be to be going through this such agony of self-imposed hunger, fast in private. Don't make a show of it. Fasting in Christ's era was regularly accompanied with the wearing of sackcloth and throwing ashes over one's head, obviously meant to have people notice. It was even a rather scheduled thing, as recorded in the Talmudic text Ta'anit, 27b, private fasting was ordained to take place on the second, third, fourth, and fifth days of the week. The other days it was prohibited. The point of fasting is not for a public demonstration. Rather, it is for an inward expression of repentance that only God can see. I want to continue with the theme. Nowhere do we find Paul 
dealing with fasting in any of his epistles. Fasting was a very Jewish religious element that showed up mainly in the Holy Land and far less so among the diaspora of the Jews. Christians merely borrowed the practice of fasting. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's what should be done. But tradition, uh, rather, uh, its practice, unfortunately, is based on various denominational, denominational doctrines and traditions because to do so otherwise would require delving into the Old Testament and then into repentance. The idea is that unconfessed and unrepentant sin hinders the communication channel between us and God. It is not that the more we fast, the more we suffer from it, the more we get what we want. That is a self-centered attitude. The former is a God-centered attitude. You know, it's classic Jesus that he mentions the Father twice in rapid succession. It is the Father who ordains and judges and takes action. It is the Father who sees all and knows all, according to Christ. It is the Father who is to be worshipped and praised. And certainly, while Christ in heaven, our Messiah, is also to be glorified, it is only because He is the Father's agent. The demotion of the Father and the promotion of Yeshua within Christianity has as its basis nothing scriptural at all. But rather, such a role-swapping is only anti-Semitism, and it needs to be confronted. This in no way is meant to diminish Jesus, but the Father reigns supreme over Him. And just as the Lord's Prayer says we are to do, Christ says we are to direct our prayers to whom? To the Father. And yet, does that mean we do not ever address our Savior in heaven? Or more directly, do we pray to Yeshua or don't we? We're going to take a few minutes with this rather important question because it is far more than about mere theology. There is simply no getting around that Christ tells his disciples. And he tells everyone, all those thousands, at the Sermon on the Mount, that when they pray, they are to pray to the Father. And yet, in John 14, we read this from verses 10 through 16. Don't you, uh, don't you believe that I am united with the Father and the Father united with me? What I am telling you, I am not saying on my own initiative. The Father living in me is doing His own works. Trust me that I am united with the Father, and the Father united with me. But if you can't, then trust because of the works themselves. Yes, indeed, I tell you that whoever trusts in me will also do the works that I do. Indeed, he will do greater ones, because I'm going to the Father. In fact, Whatever you ask for in my name, I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, if you ask me for something in my name, I'll do it. If you love me, 
you will keep my commands and I will ask the Father and he will give you another comforting counselor like me, the Spirit of truth, to be with you forever. Now from this passage it might seem that even after the example of the Lord's Prayer we have choices A and B to pray to, either the Father or to Yeshua. And yet the waters are instantly muddied when Christ says that if you love Him, then He will ask the Father to send the Spirit. Clearly Jesus is saying that of all the things that He does have heavenly authority over, the sending and the directing of the work of the Holy Spirit is not one of them. Later on, in John 16, starting at verse 19, we read this, Yeshua knew that they wanted to ask Him, so He said to them, Are you asking each other what I meant by saying, in a little while you won't see me, and then a little while later you will see me? Yes, it's true. I tell you that you will sob and mourn, and the world will rejoice. You'll grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. You know, when a woman is giving birth, she's in pain, because her time has come. But when the baby is born, she forgets her suffering out of joy that a child has come into the world. So you do indeed feel grief now, but I'm going to see you again. Then your hearts will be full of joy and no one will take your joy away from you. When that day comes, you won't ask anything of me. Yes, indeed, I tell you that whatever you ask from the Father, He will give you in my name. Till now you haven't asked for anything in my name. Keep asking and you will receive, so that your joy may be complete. Now I have said these things to you with the help of illustrations. However, a time is coming when I will no longer speak indirectly, but will talk about the Father in plain language. When that day comes, you will ask in my name. I am not telling you that I will pray to the Father on your behalf. For the Father Himself loves you, because you have loved Me, and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into this world. Again, I am leaving the world and returning to the Father. Now here it seems as though Christ is turning things a bit from what He said only two chapters earlier. Yeshua spoke earlier of we, His followers, asking Him, but now He speaks of asking the Father in Jesus' name. Yeshua knew what He was saying had to be befuddling. He didn't intend it to be a puzzle. It's only that what we're dealing with is the very substance of God. Humans have tried all manner of ways. To illustrate God's substance, water is used. It can be solid fluid or gas. The egg is used, hard shell, soft white, surrounded by a yellow yolk. The various Trinity doctrines try to explain the inner workings of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is my opinion that while not wholly adequate, we need to think of God as a set of identifiable attributes, each with a distinct purpose. Of those attributes, Yeshua, the Son, 
is God's agent who brings about the Father's will. In another sense, the Father and the Son are so perfectly unified in will, even so it is the Father's will that the Son puts on as His own will, that it seems that under many circumstances the Son can receive a request from one of His followers and act, because His job, His attribute, is to act on the Father's behalf, but still only with the bounds of the Father's will. I notice that Jesus never says to pray to Him. He says, pray to the Father. What we see is that in place of using the word pray, Jesus says He Himself is to be asked. Now, is there a difference between praying to the Father versus asking Jesus? I think there must be in Jesus' mind, but I'm not exactly sure what that difference might be. I mean, I've said on numerous occasions that all we humans have at our disposal to communicate with God and with one another and to discern matters of the spiritual world are human words. The only illustrations of the spiritual world we have that we can use necessarily come from the physical world. But because the spiritual world is so different from, so superior to the physical world, there's no vocabulary or illustration available, and I don't believe our minds are built to understand it anyway, that would help us fully grasp how this exact relationship between the Christ and the Father, the substance of God, actually works. So we have only the vaguest idea of it, but we need to be satisfied with that for the time being, although we yearn for more conclusive answers. But I caution, such yearning out of curiosity, that's fine. But if that yearning is more of a demand for proof, otherwise belief is held back or it's suspended, then what we're doing is putting God on trial. Therefore, is it wrong to pray to Jesus? No. But as with all that He has been telling us so far in the Sermon on the Mount, our inner motive, our intent behind our prayer is the key. If we are praying to, a Jesus, praying to Jesus to avoid praying to the Father, who so many in the institutional church regard as the God of the Jews and not the God of Gentile Christians, or they see the Father as the obsolete God of the Old Testament and Jesus the new God of the New Testament, then we have a problem of motive. However, if we pray to Jesus in the sense that He and the Father are unified in some immutable way that He has plainly said is the case, something that's beyond our limited human ability to grasp, and that whatever we pray to Him will either be taken to the Father, or that Jesus will act in the Father's behalf as the Father's agent, then it must be fine to pray to Jesus. So in the same vein, 
Verse 18 ends by Yeshua saying that since you are praying to the Father, and since the Father sees what is done in secret, in secret, private, is where most personal prayer ought to take place, then it is the Father that will issue any rewards. Now, verse 19 moves on to one of the more challenging subjects, especially for Westerners. The subject is money and the want of it. Now, I'm going to say up front the prosperity doctrine is near bizarre and undefendable after reading verses 19 through 24. But in a doctrine oriented Christianity, whatever new doctrine that comes around that pleases and seems to personally benefit the congregation, it's usually adopted. It also needs to be said before we even begin that although verses 19 through 24 speak directly about God and money, verses 24 through 25 are connected to that same subject. The question at hand is this one What should I do? about personal wealth and how does that affect my relationships with fellow humans and, more importantly, my relationship with God. So starting at verse 19, moving well into chapter 7, we will begin to deal with what we must call social issues, with money being the first one. Now the instruction is to not store up personal wealth on earth, but rather to store it up in heaven. Now, although our complete Jewish Bible says wealth, most other Bible versions say treasure, and I think that's closer to the mark. The Greek word is, uh, is uh, thesaros, and the Greek lexicons say that it means precious things that are collected and put away in a treasury. Now, one can have wealth and not necessarily consider it treasure or precious. So the idea is for us to not concentrate the purpose of our lives on laying up material things that are so very precious to us, but rather to use that time and mental energy to store up different things that are also precious to us, but for entirely different reasons. So if we are not to focus on acquiring the material things, money being that prime thing, and we're not to do that on earth, then what is the nature of the non-material treasure that we're supposed to lay up in a spiritual heaven? Now, if you answer that it can only be spiritual things, fine, but my next question is, what spiritual things? If it is spiritual things, then how do we acquire them on earth? I think the answer comes in the next several verses, and basically it is that the heavenly treasure amounts to our good deeds and generosity. So it's not an issue of the tangible, that is material wealth, versus the intangible, spiritual wealth. The precious treasure we are to lay up in heaven begins as something that is quite tangible. Yeshua also says that laying up precious material things on earth are destined to have a short lifespan anyway. 
Moths are certain to eat fine and valuable garments. Rust is certain to destroy things made of metal. Metal of all kind was expensive and valuable in Christ's era. But the things we lay up in heaven, they're eternal. Nothing can sully them. Nothing can devalue them or destroy them. But again we come back to the question, so what are those things? The answer can be found in Matthew 23:23. Woe to you hypocritical Torah teachers and parushim, Pharisees. You pay your tithes of mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the Torah, justice, mercy, and trust. These are the things you should have attended to without neglecting the others. Mint, dill, and cumin were relatively expensive spices. Only the more well-to-do could give those things, or perhaps the more pious might sacrifice much in their lives to buy such things to offer. And yet, as valuable as they are in earthly wealth terms, Christ says, justice, mercy, and trust are more true treasure to God. The reality is that justice, mercy, and trust are only valuable when they are put into action. These God principles must be encapsulated within our properly motivated good deeds and not for our own benefit. Nor can justice, mercy, and trust exist in our lives via mere words or philosophies or our theories that we intellectually agree with. So one can certainly store up such treasures as those specious, uh, precious and expensive spices, and there is nothing inherently wrong with that. Nothing. But they have no positive eternal effect either. Better than focus on storing up the rewards that God gives us from our behaving and acting with justice, mercy, and trust. So while on earth, justice, mercy, and trust indeed must manifest themselves in visible, tangible ways, but they also have their ethereal and their eternal side as well. We're going to end here and we'll spend considerably more time with the important matter of God and money when we meet again next time.